really want to encourage you all and reiterate a lot of what Janice said. Um, and she, she already repeated this, but we, we don't do a lot of those fellowship events um, in this ministry. And, and a lot of that is because we don't want to take up your time, right? Like we want you all to be able to use your time and leverage it for the mission. Um, but I am super excited about some of the ideas that are, that are coming up. Some of them are more outreach oriented. Some of them are more kind of in-house. Let's get closer as a, as a campus ministry family. Um, so as we, as we go forward with that, if you're not on our Facebook group, it'd be really, really key for you to do that. I know Facebook's not really in anymore, but it's the best way to communicate with a lot of people. So if you can find that, just search Campus Collective. Um, it'll be on there so you can kind of get schedule as we, as we put those out there. Um, so for, for a little disclaimer real quick on this lesson. This, we are starting First Peter tonight, so I'm super fired up. But I will say, Snow Week jacked me up. Like, I was all ready to just do the first two verses of First Peter. That's where we're going to go, one and two. And it was exciting. So I was, I was going at it, you know, verses one and two, just like, man, it's good stuff. Let's, let's do it. And then I looked at my schedule and I realized, oh, no. If I do this, I'm not going to be done at the proper time at the end of the semester. We're never going to finish First Peter. They're never going to know how it ends. It's going to be awful. So I was like, I know. I'll try to combine two weeks. Now, I tried to combine two weeks, and this was would have taken us through verse 12. And by the time that I kind of skeleton outlined that whole thing, it probably wouldn't have been a 75-minute sermon. And nobody wants that. I mean, I might. I mean, any, but anybody is one of Brad Chenault, who leaves early, says he would be okay with it. No, it's, he's doing ministry. He has something at 8 o'clock. But, but nobody, wants, nobody wants a 75-minute sermon. So I thought, okay, we're going to chop it at 9. And then, in light of all this, I'm like, I don't know how to do this passage justice because it's so dense and it's so just, man, rich with the gospel that I thought, I, I can't even begin to actually unpack all of this for you. So here's my challenge tonight. Just... Be prepared to kind of meditate on this throughout the week. Can you all agree with me? Like, I cannot do all of this um, tonight. And I could have in 75 minutes. So because of our short intention spans, uh, that would have been hard. Because <laughs> we're millennials. We can't focus on anything for a long time. Um, so we're just going to do nine verses tonight. And I am fired up about First Peter. So let's go ahead and get there. If you, if you have a Bible, turn to First Peter. And I, I will... I tried something new with this lesson, too, and I tried to come up with a title um, that I thought may work. Normally, I just kind of borrow a phrase from one of the verses and make it my title so nobody can argue with it. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to get creative this time. I'm going to go, welcome to hope. And then the more I sat on it, the more I realized, not a great title. So the, the title of my message is 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. And um, we, we're going to just go through this together, and I hope you will continue to join us through the rest of the semester. We're just going to go through this book verse by verse, word by word, and it's going to be awesome. And let me tell you a little bit about First Peter of why I think this, this book is awesome, because it's true that it's going to be great, but there's also a flip side to this in that I think this book is a little bit terrifying. I think it's scary, because I fully believe that the Lord in His sovereign wisdom moved in me to want to teach First Peter for us this semester. Now, here's why that's awesome. Because it's a dense, authentic, bold letter, and it's written by God, so that's a big deal. But, but here's why it's terrifying. Is that one of this book's most pressing themes throughout 
is the idea of suffering. The fact that it will happen, the fact that it happens because of our sin and the brokenness of the world, and the fact that the Bible promises that we will face it as people of God. You, you hear that? Like, if the Lord, for whatever reason, is moving us, I'm not saying this in a, in a prophetic way, like the Lord was like, all of them will suffer. So teach First Peter this semester. But I, I don't believe in coincidences. And if whatever reason, in Lord's sovereignty, He brings you here, this group of us here tonight, to sing songs and to hear from His Word, we've, we've got to listen up a little bit. Because the fact that First Peter is in the Bible has a lot to say about what our walk as followers of Christ on mission this campus will be. So I truly believe that the Lord led us to this book. Um, it, it should be made known that you may need the truths of this book this semester. You may get that phone call that changes your life. It could just not even be this semester. Maybe it's this year is full of suffering. Or maybe some of you are limping in here tonight and you're already experiencing just the depths of, of suffering. And even if it doesn't come this year, it's going to come in our life. And you have to not make bones about this. When you're following Jesus, you're not joining some always life, always awesome movement. We're following a man who was beaten and killed. So suffering is going to happen to us, but this man also died and rose again. So a counter theme in this is, is suffering will happen, it's going to be hard, you're sinful so you contribute to this, and then kind of underneath all of that and shining really bright is that, but you can have unbelievable hope in the midst of suffering. So, this was going to be my big transition sentence. Welcome to hope. But I'm not going to do it because it's so cheesy. So, welcome to hope. Um, and, and here's Proverbs 13, 12. I want to give you this little intro first. Here's one of the reasons why you, as a follower of Christ, need hope. Here's one reason. Proverbs 13, 12 says this. Hope deferred, that's a fancy way of saying not having hope, makes the heart sick. So a man or a woman, when you are Lacking the experience of genuine hope in you. Your heart will be sick. Now think about this. If you've ever gone through something where you think there's just no way that all of these bad things work out for a favorable end for me, your heart's sick, right? Like, it, it feels heavy. There's no way. And I'm talking anything from like, how am I going to pass all these finals to I have messed up so bad there's no way God will take me back. To this person wronged me so brutally, there's no way I will be whole again. You, you've, if you've been there, you know, my heart's sick. When, don't, when there's no way hope is there, my heart can be sick. So here's some definitions of hope. And these might be helpful for you as you meditate this week, which you're going to do, um, on, on these some kind of secular definitions of hope. Here, here's three ways it's used. Number one, a desire... For something good in the future. It's fair, right? Good thing about these definitions, I didn't make them, so you can argue with them if you don't agree. So jot it down like that's not right if you don't like it. But I think it's fair. A desire for something good in the future. Second, the actual thing that we desire in the future. So not just a feeling of, I hope that happens, but the, the, the thing that I'm wanting to happen, it's, that's the hope. Or, the reason for thinking that our desire will be fulfilled. There's some examples. So we can, first, first here's a, an example of the first definition. 
I hope that airline tickets are cheap this Christmas so Courtney and I can visit her family. That's fair, right? If the tickets are $600, I'm not going to Florida for Christmas. They're $100, I'm going to Florida. So I hope, I desire something good. This is really important to get this. Does that make sense? I hope that this happens. Second one. My hope is that, so this is the actual thing that I want. My hope is that my parents move to Huntington one day. I want that. They live in Milton. They work and go to church in Huntington. I'm in Huntington. I'm an only child. Come to Huntington. Right? Because I get what I want and what I hope. But you see that it's not necessarily the desire there, but it's the, the hope itself is that they would move. Thirdly, this is the reason for thinking. So here's an example. Luke Ham's only hope of beating me in a wrestling match is if I'm injured. <laughs> Kidding on that one, but you get the point, right? Like that, that's the, the reason behind. So I'm thinking that if Luke, Luke could dominate me, but in my fantasy world, I'm thinking the only way he's beating me is if I'm hurt. So it's the reason for that favorable outcome, okay? Now, here's the thing about those definitions. Those are good. That makes sense. But you need to obliterate those in your mind when you think about the hope that the Bible is talking about. All of these definitions are used in the Bible. But these normal definitions are more of a hope so without certainty. Does that make sense? Like, at the end of the day, you're really kind of lacking. If you just hope that that thing will happen, by the nature of hoping that it will, you're not sure if it will. Does that make sense? Like, you're not really hoping. You would know instead of hope. These examples, though, desire for something good, the actual thing we desire, the reason for thinking that our desire will be fulfilled, bursts to life in the Bible because the hope that it happens is based on absolute rock-solid certainty. So when we think about things that we want to happen, especially in our spiritual life, or promises that God has made, even though everything around us seems like there's no way, you're not just holding on to some kind of dim, just optimistic, fluffy feeling in your soul. What you are deciding to do when you hope in what the Bible says is hope, you are saying, I know that will happen. This type of hope can create a heart that can be locked on Christ. And listen, this is what we need. So that's what 1 Peter is going to try to do. So let's look at the first two verses. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So let's do some intro work. It's, I think it's fair. Since Peter introduces himself, we have to ask, who is this guy? I'm going to give you a quick, really quick biography. This is the guy known for being fearless, kind of a foot and mouth kind of guy, leader of the 12 apostles who recognized Christ early on, but also was called Satan by Jesus himself. The same guy who was used mightily at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. You can imagine that, right? Some guy gets up, preaches 3,000 get saved. But he's also the guy who denied the Lord to a little girl. He would eventually, history says, be crucified upside down because the only thing he truly cared about was the kingdom of God advancing and had a hope that left his heart full to the point where he's like, kill me for it. You can kill me. 
Most scholars would agree that he died during the intense time of persecution under a man named Nero. Now, Nero was known for burning things down in Rome to rebuild it to make it more glorious. And, and one of the sickest things about kind of this wave of persecution for the church is that Nero was actually known for tying Christians up to sticks and lighting them on fire and using that to light his city, his empire. Absolutely disgusting. And, and so if Peter died in that around the 64 AD mark, logic says this letter would have had to come sometime before that. Right? He didn't write this after death. So, here's the deal. It may or may not have been in that intense Nero persecution, but the fact of the matter is, is that persecution was there, suffering was imminent, and it was about to get potentially a whole lot worse for this new church. Peter is a reliable source on this because he literally lived it, or died it, to be more literal. This is a man who truly looked suffering in the eye, had a hope beyond the grave that led him to be okay with dying for the cause. Now, I want that. And, and for Peter, that wasn't a, you know, you don't, you don't choose to be murdered for a faith that you just kind of hope is real, right? Like you're not, man, I just kind of, uh, he told me these things, I, I really hope so. I hope that I get Jesus to go ahead and kill me. You only stare suffering in the deepest pain down with confidence if you know that that hope is true. So he's an apostle, a sent one. Now look who he writes this to. This is interesting. Normally these letters we look at, they're kind of to a, to a church, right? A group of people. This And he says this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So don't gloss over that because the way that Peter decides to describe the church has huge ramifications for how you probably need to see yourself in Christ. So two words there. Elect and exiles. Now, elect means chosen, brought out, distinguished. Exiles is a person who has been banned or taken away from their home. It's fair. So when he's deciding all the ways, he could have said, to the beloved children of God, or to the more than conquerors, or the mighty Jesus followers, or whatever he could have said, he decides to say, to the elect exiles. To the chosen people who are not home. Of the dispersion. Now, most people would say that this dispersion was because, like dispersed, you think like scattered, like spread out, right? Most people think because this persecution was coming, they were called the dispersion, which is kind of a cool like, name to be known for, right? Like, yeah, we're part of the dispersion. We're spreading this kingdom even in the midst of persecution. And he says, I want to write these people need to remember that they are chosen and that they are not home. Now, here's an identity check for you. Know this. As a follower of Christ, you were chosen. Now, I'm not trying to be controversial and get into the giant theological debates of the day and the yesterday and all the days. But I think it's important that we just plain reading, we see that for whatever reason, in the midst of suffering, Peter found it necessary to remind us that we are chosen people. And if he was choosing to save you, sovereignly bringing about the events that led to the gospel conversation that you responded in faith to be a saved person, that means he must be in complete control of every circumstance after. Do you see how this could have helped? Like, 
It would have been easy to think all this bad stuff is happening. Maybe this whole Jesus following the way isn't real. Look at all the world is against us. And Peter's saying, no, listen, you are elect exiles. Remember, chosen by God and not yet home. So just as we can get excited, it is a good thing. You were chosen. If you were saved, God chose you. But also know this, you don't belong here. You don't. It's easy to try to make our home here. Make our home at Marshall. Make our home as a college kid. Make our home as whatever. You, you can't love this world and the things of the world anymore if you are a Christian. And listen, that is so crucial for you if we're going to go through suffering together as a family. Because the more you bank on what the world can give you when that's taken away, i.e. suffering, you lose hope. But if you realize, I don't love this world anyways, or what it can offer me, this worldly hope, I don't want it. I want what Jesus has for me. So know these things. The flow of the culture is going to be against you. If you're not a follower of Christ, unsaved people will not necessarily understand you about the things that are most important to you. <coughs> you are different. And I think as, as a follower of Christ, when I was reading this this past week, just trying to wrap my mind around the beauty of being an elect exile, I think the practical application for us is just to go and decide we're just going to own it. <laughs> like, life's going to get hard. Things will sometimes not make sense, and suffering is going to come. So anchor your identity in knowing that God chose you for salvation. He chose you for the suffering that He is in control of in your life to make you more like Jesus. And even more so, He chose to not let you be home yet. Now, this is not... Um, really that hard to understand from a sermon, right? It's like, okay, not, not home yet. But the way that this subtly sneaks in, and I think, and personally, in, in my life and probably in the college culture in general, is that we kind of lose this part of our identity when we work really, really hard to make our faith cool. I think it happens. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a cool person, because that would exclude at least three of us in here, Right? But, but it, we do, we work hard to make the things of our faith, and even the things that are shocking and beautiful, we work hard to make them more palatable for people. I'm not saying you don't, you know, you don't, like, share the gospel in a way that people can understand so that they will come to know Jesus, but I'm saying we work really hard to make following Jesus look like following the world, and still kind of keeping our Jesus. Don't. You're an elect exile, and the people of God have always been this way. If you think of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God elected Israel, brought them out of their bondage to slavery because of the blood of a lamb, crossed them over from death to life across the Red Sea, and then they traveled around to get to their eventual home, the Promised Land. And then they get to that land, their hope isn't actually in God, and then they're sent into exile. Over and over again, the people of God have been marked by this idea of not being home yet. We're always going to have a hard time fitting in in the current culture. And that's a good thing because it's always been a part of God's plan to eventually show the world our hope. And look at the, how he says this. You're elect exiles in the dispersion in all the countries. And he says this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, our election, our choosing was foreknown or known before by God the Father, meaning this. He already knew that He would save you and knew you intimately before anyone else did. 
Don't push away here. This is beautiful and personal. Your election, your exile was completely thought of by God before you even existed. Got to know this if you want to have hope and suffering. God chose you. All of it's sovereign. All of it's sovereignty. He saved you. This is beautiful. Knowing all the ways you would screw up after salvation. And knowing that you would continue in sin and would respond to suffering sometimes. In poor ways and lose your hope. He knew all that. Still saved you. So the foreknowledge of God qualifies the election and the exile. And also this. According to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the spirit. This is really dead stuff. But keep, keep going. So our elect exile is according to God before we existed. He knew it would happen. Our elect exile also happens in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. God the Father foreknew what the Holy Spirit would do in our salvation and in our life. We are saved. The Holy Spirit's work saves us. We are brought to be made look to look more like Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And then, saved, sanctified, God the Father foreknew by His Spirit. And here's the reason why. See this right in the, right in the text. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The reason why God the Father foreknew and by his spirit saved and sanctified you is so that you would obey Jesus. Now, notice what I didn't say. You didn't obey your way to getting saved. Notice that? It's not... You're led to exile because you were really good at obeying what I had to say. Even in the Old Covenant, our, the, the Israelite exiles, think about it. God didn't come into Egypt, bring the Ten Commandments, and say, live like this and I'll get you out of Egypt. What did he do? Save you. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Here are my commands. Here's how you glorify me. In the same way, in our exile, you are foreknown, saved for the obedience of Jesus. You didn't obey your way to earn Jesus' death. His death actually enables you to obey. And let's, let's get missional here. This isn't just to make sure you don't lie and don't steal. Obeying Jesus looks like making disciples in the very world that you're exiled from. So you don't hear, I'm an exile, and think, isolate, keep away. You think, I'm an exile, know my identity. I don't belong here, but I'm called to reach the people of this foreign land, namely, everywhere. Now, notice something. The whole trinity is involved in salvation. You can see how this could have been 55 minutes by itself, right? But, but, I, but I want you to see this. That when Peter decides to address suffering Christians, what he doesn't do is give them easy platitudes of, you know, God's in control. God, you know, not, hey, just love God more. What's he do? He goes to the deepest most beautiful doctrine of our faith and says the entire Godhead, the Trinity, was involved in saving you, sanctifying you, and putting you on mission. So don't ever think that theology kind of drives us away. It's like in, in the suffering, it's, you know, you probably don't want to start explaining all of the different ways that the Trinity gets messed up whenever somebody comes to you and says, my life's a wreck. But don't shy away and know that true things about God are what you actually need when you are in suffering. Good theology makes you a good sufferer. You, you notice that. Like, why would he, every other letter is like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints, I'm really thankful for you. All right, you're messing all this up, right? Peter, 
He's like, he's thinking, oh, that Nero is coming. These Christians, are, they're desperate for hope. I need to write them about hope. How could I? I, I know. They need to be reminded they're elect exiles, and they also need to know that the entire Godhead was involved intimately in their salvation. Deep theological truths to anchor our souls whenever we come into suffering. And these next seven verses, honestly, what I think, I think Peter just got pumped. Like, when he was thinking about the Trinity and the foreknowledge and the sanctification and for the obedience of Jesus, he was fired up. He's like, man, I, I failed. Remember Jesus when I denied you to a little girl? Yes, but I still foreknew you and I loved you and I knew you were going to suffer. I'm still going to use you into the point where you get crucified upside down. And I feel like Peter just gets so excited that he just rants about the gospel for seven verses. So let's rant with him. Look at three through five. It says this. Let's be faithful to the text. Hang on. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pause there, right off the bat. Blessed be our God. Peter somehow has the audacity to just praise God in the middle of suffering. <laughs> like, it's interesting that God's sovereign over the suffering and there's still reason to praise Him. That, that's hard. And, and I'll be, be honest with you, it's easy when we're in a comfortable room. You know, I don't know all of your stories, but maybe not all of us or any of us in here are going through a deep, like soul-shattering type of suffering. But I would you know, beg to think maybe that one day when we go through that, it's going to be really hard to be able to just say, you know, blessed be God in this. So it's hard, especially when things, you know, true, deep suffering comes. So ask yourself, does the fact that you're a chosen exile make your heart sing? In, in some supernatural way, you should be able to praise God for all the work He's done, regardless of circumstance you find yourself in. Then He keeps going. So, Blessed be God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we just get after it. Okay, he says this. According to his great mercy. So, these next ideas are according to God not giving us what we deserve. Make sense? Mercy means not getting what you deserve. As, as people, what do we deserve? Separation from him forever. We deserve the exile. We deserve the judgment. We deserve the penalty for our sin. Our status as an exile is a mercy. Even suffering that we're going to experience in this world is a mercy. And in that great mercy, look what he did. According to the things that we didn't deserve, he caused you to be born again. Now, notice, God's the active agent in the being born again. Right? See that? According to his mercy, he has caused you to be born again. Again, so Christians in here, the first time you're born, you're born into sin. Second time you're born, you're born in Christ, and God calls that work in you. He worked in your soul to make you a Christian. This should humble you. And not only, Peter doesn't stop there. He's like, according to his great mercy, calls to be born again. Here's what you're born again to. You're born to a living hope. A living good thing we desire in the future. Or a living good thing in the future that we want. Or a living reason to think that that desire will be fulfilled. Remember, not a hope so. A rock solid confidence. You can be 100% certain that the good thing that you desire in Christ is absolutely there. It's already yours and it's worth holding on to. Know that. 
Don't let this be cliche and land on your heart and think, okay, I know I've heard, yet, you know, ye shall be born again. No, God did it. And he did it to give you a hope, a living hope. How's it happen? Next phrase, through the resurrection of the dead. My gosh. Somehow, this cause you to be born again to a living hope. It's going to get, there's going to be a lot of sentence fragment here coming up. Okay, It happens through Jesus dying on the cross and leaving behind an empty grave. Realize this. In order to truly have hope, we need, to, we need a way to get over sin and suffering in this life. You realize that? What causes you to not have hope, what makes your heart sick, what ruins your life? Mainly two things. Sin, separates you from God, and suffering, result of being in a broken world. Those are the two things that are kind of after your soul. So something had to be done against those for us to actually have hope. Jesus takes our sin, suffers in our place, and then doesn't stay dead. Because he is alive, we know he'll come back to finish what he started. He keeps going. So somehow, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance. There's more. There's more to this. Think. What is this inheritance? What's an inheritance? First of all, something that is awaiting you after death. So if my parents were millionaires and they had a million dollars for me and it had, you know, I don't know how a million dollars works, but let's say it has dust on it. It's ready for me. Now, that doesn't come until they die. Pretty sure. Makes sense. It's inheritance, right? They would write in their will, I give a million dollars to Dustin. So it's something that they've earned, that they've worked for, they've, they've set up, and then a death has to happen for that to come showering into me after they die. So think about it. Our inheritance, what's awaiting us after death, inheritance to me implies not yet ours, Right? It's awaiting us after death, and it was purchased for us by Jesus' death. Now look at this inheritance. It's imperishable, never going to die, unlike the best thing you can imagine on earth. One day that thing's gone. It's undefiled, perfect in every way, unfading, does not wear out with time. One day everything on this earth will fade away and be gone. But this somehow this inheritance that Jesus has earned for us doesn't do that. And then you get the point. What we have in Christ through His resurrection is much better than anything on earth. And if you can convince yourself by God's grace to actually believe that, it changes the way you live. You live like a person of hope. Notice, when you're not having hope, it's probably because you're putting your hope in things that aren't actually hopeful. Right? More. It's crazy. Kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance... Or eternal life with God forever in perfect joy with no more sin, no more suffering is being kept for us. So there's a sense in which we don't already have it and it's in heaven. So it's inheritance, we ours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He earned it and he's giving it to us through his death. It's kept in heaven. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the receivers of this inheritance, the church of Jesus Christ, God's power, Holy Spirit, is guarding us through our faith in Him that He gave us when He caused you to be born again and that He sustains you with now. Think of it this way. The main thing that keeps you out of this glorious inheritance is unbelief. So if you've been saved, 
Your sins are forgiven, and you believe. And after that, the only thing that keeps you out of this is not having faith. But the Holy Spirit promises to keep you in the faith, guarding you to make sure that it's yours. You see that? Like, it's not dependent on the way that you respond to suffering. You could fail miserably, fall flat on your back, and this world just passes you by, and you waste 75 years. But if you have faith in Christ, that the full, complete inheritance of perfect joy forever and ever is guaranteed to be yours. Because the things that keep you away from it, sin, suffering, and unbelief, were taken care of because God did the work. We are being guarded for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. We are already saved if there is a salvation coming. This is a common thing. You need to write this down. Already and not yet. This is a common theme in 1 Peter. When it talks about salvation, it's not necessarily talking about like the moment that you received Christ and became a saved person. Okay? And sometimes when it says salvation, it's talking about the fullness of the effect of what happened to you when you became a Christian. Namely, getting God for all that He is and joy forever and ever and ever. Okay? So when it says that, it's what it's talking about. And I have this little uh, way that maybe can help you remember this if you want to write it down. So before we were saved, we were not able to not sin. Okay? You're not able to not sin. I know it's a double negative, so in other words, you're able to sin. <laughs> but roll with me. Before you're saved. After you are a saved person, you are able to not sin. Okay? Before salvation, not able to not sin. When you're saved, you're now able to obey God because He has called you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to a living hope. Now, once you receive your final salvation, get this, you will not be able to sin. So much better. Think about it. All the times when you've had the most joy in your life has been when you're killing the most sin, right? And one day, gone forever. Now, these last four verses are the practical application of this. We're not going to... You're all thinking, man, it is going to be 75 minutes. But look, 6 through 9 is more of what we do about it. So, blessed be God, all that He has done in this glorious, unbelievable gospel inheritance for you. Good reason to sing. Arm yourself in it so that you can suffer well. And then He says this. 6 through 9. In this you rejoice. So that this, we don't need to go through all that again, was all of that. In this you rejoice, suffering people. Though now for a while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Look at this. Follow the logic. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ or that final salvation. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, that final salvation. Here's the quick hitter application. What do we do in response to this unbelievable, glorious inheritance that we have? First of all, you should rejoice. Verse 6. You should be a joyful people. You should like singing to Jesus. It's a joyful thing. Not fluffy, weak optimism. I'm talking one day all my sin is gone kind of joy. Like one day this evil doesn't win kind of joy. Listen to this. You rejoice now, but every trial that you have is necessary to test your faith 
get this, so that you can have more joy. Rejoice in this gospel, but in the moments of deepest sorrow when the joy seems far away, know that the whole deal, the whole reason we're still broken and suffering is so that one day you have more joy. It's not an ignorant optimism. It's rock-solid confidence in what Jesus has done. The things of earth should not be as alluring when you know you get what is coming for you. Right? You don't worry so much about status and popularity and money and position and seeing all these. You, just, you know the best actually is coming. Jesus really did, by His work, purchase it for you. Forgiveness of sins. Being brought back to God. Another application point. Listen. Love Him without seeing Him. You don't see Him now. You see Him with faith, not your eyes. Know that. I'm not trying to trick you. It, though you've not seen Him, you love Him. So love Him now without seeing Him. Believe in Him and rejoice because salvation is coming for you. Christians here, believe this and attack sin in your life. Listen, that sin is not worth it. That secret that you're holding on, that grudge with that person is not worth it. Inheritance is coming. It's robbing you from enjoying the blessing of inheritance. It's going to be even better when you get there. If you're suffering or stepping into suffering one day, arm yourself with this. Believe, love, know this is all true. If you're not a Christian, there's hope for you in this world. But there's not if you're hoping in what the world has to offer. Status, power, popularity, whatever. Fill in the blank. Your sin causes you to be a person without hope. And even more than that, the reason that you don't have hope is because it separates you from God. And God has an inheritance laid up for the people who will follow and believe in His Son. Because He did the work to get that inheritance and He dies the death so that it guarantees that it's yours. So the big application point for a giant gospel rant really comes down to this. Believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this week... Spend some time in this text and just dwell upon the fact that as good as you can imagine this inheritance is, it is that much better. You can't over-exaggerate the goodness of God. You can't. It's that much better than everything you possibly think is good. And it's yours, guaranteed, forever and ever and ever. And if you suffer, it's necessary because in some way, God saw fit to flatten you so that you can see a little bit more of that inheritance this side of the cross or this side of the cross and this side of our final salvation. So let me pray for you as the um, Kelly and Jake come back up. We're going to sing about this, celebrate the fact that this is ours and there's nothing that we can do about it <laughs> because he did it for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to earn our inheritance, namely forever perfect peace and joy and glory and happiness and perfection with you. No more sin, no more suffering. Your son did all that. We didn't do that. We didn't do anything to make ourselves worthy of him doing that. He just did it. And Father, we admit, it's hard to see that. It's hard to see it by faith because we're blinded with sin and we're blinded with suffering. So I pray right now you would give us a clear picture right in our heart of the joy that is inexpressible so that we would leave here rejoicing, knowing this inheritance is ours. So Father, help us sing tonight like people who believe those words. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.